This is Nomina's Mental Health Mavens, where each week we bring you guests from the mental health and holistic care community to talk about different mental health issues and treatment modalities. Now, guest opinions are their own and some content may be triggering, but at Nomina, we treat complex treatment-resistant mental health and addiction, so we know the importance of making exceptional mental health accessible to everyone. With that, today's special guest is our very own Elena Brocklesby, who's here to talk about her research on social isolation of seniors during COVID-19 and some of the bioethical considerations. And with that, welcome, Christine. Why don't we start to with a brief introduction? Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your work? Um, so hi, everyone. My name is Elena. I am a primary psychotherapist at Nomina. I primarily work um, within the addiction and mental health field. We have a treatment center up in Comox, and so I work there as well as I do some counseling sessions also within the community just for, for folks um, within the Comox Valley. Well, I know you are, we're very proud of you and the work that you've done. And I wanted to talk specifically about social isolation for seniors because I have a history in it. I've worked for senior serving organizations and I know how important it is. So do you want to give us a little bit of an intro to the work that it, your research that you did? Sure. So, so as part of my master's program, I looked at social isolation and specifically I looked at the impacts of COVID-19 on social isolation within long-term care facilities. However, we know that social isolation has been around forever. There is a ton of research about it within, within the, the literature surrounding social isolation, not only within long-term care facilities, but also outside of these facilities in our interactions. People, you know, if we, if we even go back, you know, people weren't meant evolutionarily um, to live in isolation. We all needed to work together. We all had a role to play and rely on each member's skills and abilities to survive. And so, you know, if we look at our post-industrialized world that we're currently living in, you know, we're really living in these increasingly disconnected lives where both social isolation and loneliness um, have been neglected. That's been a theme in a lot of the interviews that I've done. We did one on the neurobiology of addiction, another one in evolutionary psychology, where this keeps coming up that we're meant to be a tribe, a community. Yeah, certainly. I mean, that that is something that we have. There's a lot of research surrounding how social connection is such an integral point in, in individuals' lives in order to be healthy and live well. Okay, well, why don't you tell us a little bit about your research then? What did you find in terms of the, the with COVID and the extra social isolation that was happening around that? Sure. So, so first off, I just want to clarify, you know, social isolation and loneliness are often used interchangeably, but they are different concepts. So you have loneliness, which is really defined as, you know, a painful subjective experience which is based on your, the quality and quantity of your social interactions. 
um, that aren't in alignment with your desired connections. So maybe you have many friends, um, maybe the quality isn't there. And so that's not in alignment with what you want. You're hoping for more quality interactions with folks. And then you also have social isolation, which is different. It's an actually objective measure of the number of social contacts and relationships that an individual has. So as we look at social isolation, I think one of the first things, like why essentially did I research this? It is a health concern. It's a very important health concern. So social isolation and loneliness lead to negative health impacts. And so one of the the main points I want to get across is there are mental health implications, but also physical health implications to social isolation. So if we look at the mental health implications, we know that social isolation has been, um, but through research has leads to an increase in depression, increase in responsive behaviors. Um, you tend to have a worse mood and affect as well as a worsening in emotion. You have increased anxiety and in, actually an increased cognitive decline. Those are kind of some of the main mental health impacts of social isolation. And then when we think about the physical health impacts, those are a little bit different. One uh, study I found, which I found was very fascinating, they actually linked social isolation, had similar impact to someone smoking 15 cigarettes a day. So that's how they linked it back to, you know, a physical health concern. So it actually increases your risk of cardiovascular disease, obesity, and stroke. And so, yeah, so it, it increases morbidity, essentially. So it is an important topic. It's an important concern. It's not one that we should really trivialize. What about those people that prefer to be isolated? I know we have introverts and extroverts. And I know during COVID, I had friends of mine that were so social that really struggled. And then people like me <laughs> thought it was great. <laughs> Yeah. And I I mean, that goes back to that feeling of loneliness. So, you know, loneliness is a a subjective feeling. So myself included, I am an introvert. And I thought, you know, this is the best thing ever. (laughs) I don't have to go and socialize with a whole bunch of people. I personally didn't feel social. I didn't feel like the quality or quantity of my social connections at that time it, it was in alignment with my desires. So it actually, for me, was a benefit. So for, for some folks, yeah, COVID didn't have negative impacts to them and their feelings of social isolation. And, and for others, it did. It had a huge impact. So the mental health and the physical health challenges that come with it are more directed towards those people who do experience the loneliness then that are impacted. Is that correct? Yeah, essentially, yeah. I mean, this, my study uh, examined social isolation in particular, but it, yeah, it would be the, perce- the perceived impact of uh, the lack of quantity or 
lack of quality or quantity of your relationships. And during COVID, was it the measures that the health professionals were taking that, uh, was there other, what were the factors involved in the additional social isolation that was going on? So there are a number of factors. Before you even go into the COVID, I just want to touch on some of the risk factors of social isolation of older adults in long-term care facilities. So even prior to COVID, we know that there were risk factors for folks who lived in long-term care facilities. You know, these facilities are operate in communal fashion, lots of multiple residents. And so it seems really counterintuitive to think that social isolation could occur when you're living in such a communal setting. But we found that there was actually high risk for individuals experiencing social isolation within these facilities. So one of the first things was communication barriers predispose um, folks living in long-term care facilities to social isolation. So if they had, say, hearing and cognitive um, impairments, folks who experience that obviously aren't able to communicate with other people, which is such an important piece to having the quality of social interaction that we need. And then if we look at the long-term care system as a whole, that in and of itself is a risk factor. So you have folks, uh, long-term care residents, who are removed both socially and geographically from the communities that they live in, and then they're placed into long-term care facilities. And there's really little integration between the long-term care facility and also the greater community that they used to really have connections in, or maybe maybe they didn't in some some instances. But this separation um, really serves as more disconnection from the broader community. So if we look even from a sociological perspective, a study was examining social isolation of of residents, and they found that um, some folks living in long-term care facilities experienced social isolation and blamed it on their own individual deficits. So there was something wrong with them And that's why they were experiencing social isolation. And so some participants in this particular study found that social isolation stemmed from their own introversion, from self-imposed choices to remain lonely, from personal challenges in developing new social relationships, and and also just from personal guilt um, due to being socially isolated. So even the experience of being isolated caused them to feel guilt, which was a contributing factor in them continuing to experience social isolation. So I found that particularly interesting that people really internalized that experience. Yeah, my experience with it, working in a long-term facility and then working for a senior uh, social supports organization was that a lot of the families, there was a lot of family dynamics that played into it. There was some estrangement, there was resentments that they were just. Yeah. And, and I, I'd love to touch on that in a bit, but um, you know, there, there are several public health measures due to COVID, right? When, when COVID came into effect, it was declared a a pandemic in March of 2019, you know, there were public health orders that followed. And that was meant to protect the health of of individuals. But in fact, for many folks, it had a negative impact on their on their health due to their experience of social isolation. So even looking at that, 
if we look at the family, you know, family, one of the, the first things is that they denied visitor um, entry, right? So there weren't any visitors allowed within long-term care facilities. And that was meant to protect individuals from transmitting COVID-19 into these long-term care settings. And unfortunately, you know, when you characterize family caregivers as visitors, that's a real mischaracterization. Um, Family caregivers are actually known to provide up to 30% of long-term care residents' needs in the homes. And so they assist with toileting, they assist with feeding, their emotional supports. Um, So they actually provide, you know, mobility, they provide quite an array of services, you know, that isn't being paid for. And that's to the to the long term care facilities benefit, and certainly to the residents benefit as well. And I'm sure you've noticed that. Yeah, no, definitely. Especially with the um, public ones, the public long-term facilities, because there's that distinction too between the private and then the public. Certainly. Yeah. Some other public health measures that affected social isolation and long-term care residences also included um, the restriction of staff and volunteers. So Public Health Office of BC implemented essentially a single site order, which limited healthcare staff to working solely in one facility. And that was, you know, to prevent transmission between facilities. But that caused these these staff members to really pick a facility and and certain residents really build connections with certain staff members. And then all of a sudden, if that staff member isn't around, they no longer have that social connection with that individual. So that was quite detrimental as well. You know, we had the restriction of of activities and interactions within long-term care facilities. So you know, the communal space of sharing meals and stuff that no longer was happening. Residents were asked to stay within their rooms. And a lot of these rooms, you know, the majority of which are single occupancy rooms and with limited space. So kind of felt like maybe they were trapped in their rooms at that time. And then one thing that I really found was that ageism really played a a negative role in viewing older adults throughout the COVID pandemic. Um, and it perpetuated prejudice and stereotypes and also discrimination. I know some of my own friends, I heard them say, well, it just affects the old people. And I was horrified by that. That if it, you know, it, it, it's not fair to say that they should all stay in um, when, when it was all of us that were affected. Certainly, yeah. I think that essentially that's something that I found in my research. The media really picks older adults as one homogenous group, you know, and so there actually is quite a bit of diversity among older adults. Only 3% of our older adult population lives in long-term care facilities. So kind of depicting them as one group is, is not helpful. And they also typically depict them as having negative characteristics, um, such as like, you know, deterioration of function, frailty, disease, passivity, you know, you have dependence and social vulnerability. I know 
media probably doesn't intend to do that. But when you're bombarded, certainly during the COVID pandemic, we were bombarded with images of older adults in long-term care facilities, these stock images, and that's what you pick up from these images. And so this ageism actually permeated a lot of the framing development of public health policies. One impact of ageism is that medical policy decisions uh, were determined, which only used age as a criteria for treatment in, in, in what was a real resource-scarce situation. So if we think about the, the ventilator situation and when there is multiple folks in the hospital, the United States actually adopted something they called a ventilator allocation guideline where they used age as a tie-breaking criteria for allowing folks access to ventilators. Um, another example is... Some countries put in place protracted lockdown measures specifically for older adults and other young adults or young folks were allowed to move freely within the country. And this was really rationalized as being a necessary sacrifice by over adults to prevent overwhelming the medical system. You know, this this example, this specific example, really provides a false notion that chronological age should be the main criteria for risk during the COVID-19 pandemic, as opposed to other risk factors like health history, chronic conditions, and lifestyle. So, in fact, the data actually shows that younger adults represent the largest had represented at that time the largest proportion of COVID-19 carriers. So in fact, that's where the risk actually was, you know, ageism permeated these these health policies and helped inform them. Um, And then another thing uh, with ageism is paternalism. And I'm sure you're familiar with that as well uh, in your experience in your work history. So ageism reinforces paternalism by excluding older adults from from necessary policy development. A lot of older adults didn't have a voice when these policies were implemented. You know, it's always framed as being for their benefit, that they really lacked autonomy in that aspect. I know you wanted to cover ethics and uh, I I think I'm always happy to talk about ethics anytime it comes up around any topic. So my my experience is from a social work perspective. So we're always looking at social justice approaches and ethics um, is a really big part of, you know, how I operate in the world and it's how I framed my research. And so there's kind of two different directions in ethics. I'm going to first look at just certain ethical principles that came up, but then I'm also going to look at some bioethical arguments as well, which are a bit more nuanced and more applicable to a medical field. So first starting with simply ethical principles, autonomy, specifically within a long-term care facility, is is really important to self-worth to dignity and to personhood. And this really was starting to lack during COVID-19. That autonomy was no longer available. So public authorities, public health authorities, sorry, and staff of long-term care facilities often became decision makers and and deprived long-term care facilities and the residents 
uh, of their autonomy and their agency and independence to make health decisions for themselves. I often use this example. You know, if if we look, if we do a comparison of folks living within the long-term care facilities and also those living within the community, when you look at older adults living within the community, they benefited from the freedom of autonomy and choice. And, and they could either abide by or disobey these public health measures. So in contrast, long-term care residents were really deprived of this autonomy. You know, management of long-term care facilities informed residents of how they could conduct themselves. And they essentially engaged in surveillance of their actions. And so surveillance is, is another ethical principle that I think it is important to note you know, due to the structure of these long-term care facilities, you know, their communal settings, it's very easy to surveil and keep tabs on folks. So the Seniors Advocate of BC did a review of the COVID-19 outbreaks in BC, and they found that there was a 24% higher risk of larger COVID-19 outbreaks within long-term care facilities with shared rooms than those facilities with single occupancy rooms. And so the actual physical structure and design of these long-term care facilities certainly made surveillance um, easier for staff members, but also actually enabled an increase in disease transmission. And then finally, we're looking at kind of individual versus, versus collective rights. You know, these public restrictions were put in place from a public health standpoint. And, and that essentially means that there's a collective interests are given precedence, um, which is really differentiated between how traditional healthcare operates. The mission of public healthcare during a pandemic is essentially break the chain of transmission in a community, keep that transmission low. And it involves a very broad scope and a myriad of different details and, and stakeholders. So that kind of contrasts from that of a traditional healthcare setting, which is typically viewed as an interaction between an individual and the healthcare profession. And they use a patient, patient-centered approach. So this is this public health emergency really was at odds of the collective right of society as a whole and trying to reduce that transmission versus individual rights. So I found that also fairly interesting from my research. So now I'm going to just talk a little bit about bioethics. Now, this obviously I'm not a medical doctor. And so this is my interpretation of bioethics from my research. It's not the ethical principles that I practice from. So when we look at bioethics, there are five main points that came up from this standpoint. And I'm going to briefly touch on a few of them. First is harm and proportionality. So essentially, this aspect should be reviewed or revisited at multiple points during the pandemic. Long-term care residents, yes, were at increased risk of infection of COVID-19, which required hospitalization. And so at the outset of the pandemic, you know, there was a lot of uncertainty um, around COVID-19 and confusion, which really justified these public health measures that were put in place. But as the pandemic continued, those restrictions really became protracted. 
and there were risks of harm to individuals by those specific um, restrictions. My research showed that there really should have been um, an assessment of harm and proportionality throughout the pandemic rather than just at the outset. Another aspect was reciprocity. So that's a core principle of public health, and it really requires the balancing of the benefits and the burdens of social cooperation. So that's the definition of reciprocity. Under this principle, if one sacrifices their personal liberties for the greater good of others, society then owes a reciprocal obligation to the individual. Okay, so this obligation could include providing support or refraining from discrimination um, towards that individual. And so if we look at the context of long-term care facilities, you know, they provided a, they sacrificed their personal liberties in their autonomy. However, greater society also requires or is obligated to, to compensate for that. And so what is that compensation? Has that compensation even been made at this point? So that's just a general question around what do we owe long-term care residents for them sacrificing their own personal liberties for us? Um, Then we have transparency of government, the media, and long-term care facilities. So information from public health authorities, the media, and long-term care facilities was really limited and unclear. And it was variable, so it didn't often come at normal times. It was kind of the tap ran full or there was nothing. Um, And it also left room for really misinformation, which, which left individuals to speculate and question and doubt the correspondence. So these communication challenges were really problematic within long-term care facilities and, and ensuring that correct information was, was brought out um, to the public and to these institutions. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. I particularly found this fascinating just given all of the work that I've done in long-term care and supportive care. And as a woman who has parents that are heading over into supportive living with a stepdad who's soon to go into long-term care, it was, yeah, this was, this was great. Now, was there anything that you wanted to add in closing? Well, I think um, one of the important pieces to my research was kind of looking at some of the strategies that were implemented to resolve or solve the problem of social isolation. You know, a lot of them kind of focused on those micro level interventions, which are like individual to individual. How do we get better technology access or develop apps, you know, that help that are user friendly too, that can help individuals connect with um, their loved ones. You know, unfortunately, those I don't feel go far enough. So social isolation for me is a systemic issue, right? It is not an individual concern. And so when we're looking at supporting folks who are experiencing that, we really need to look broader at what are the systemic concerns that are impacting social isolation. So certainly ageism for me is really high on the list of concerns that we need to tackle. Well, what is ageism? One of the one of the concerns with ageism is that it is so ingrained in our society that people see it as normal, right? Anti-aging tra- creams, 
you know, that is normal. What, what makes aging problematic? It's because we're concerned about, you know, maybe we have internal concerns about being uh, depending on others, not being able to do things. Again, that aging looks different for different people. So we really need to first, I think, develop more information and outreach to folks and explain, provide psychoeducation and explain what is ageism. Look at how it's impacted our lives. Let's not buy people funny cards about you know, how aging is bad and buy them canes on their 50th birthdays. You know, we really need to tackle that. And then I think because it's a systemic issue, we need to bring in um, stakeholders from multiple different areas. You know, we need folks that work within long-term care facilities. We need folks that um, work within policy. We need levels of government that can come and bring in collaborative approach to tackling social isolation so that people don't view it as an internal deficit because it's not it it is a systemic issue it's how we structure long-term care facilities so yeah in a nutshell I think those are some of the main takeaways for me from my research and you know, I hope that that kind of inspires other people to to look at ageism in their own lives and how it kind of permeates and is normalized and deemed acceptable. And maybe they can take that and, you know, just view, view the systems that we operate in with a little bit of uh, curiosity. You've inspired me. I also handle the social media phenomena. So anyone that follows us, be prepared. You're going to start seeing some stuff on ageism. I will do my part. (laughs) Great. Thank you. 